When Marvin Hemeyer moved to Colorado, it was for a new life. A life full of snowmobiling, his muffler shop, and maybe he could even find love. But Marvin was met with roadblocks at every turn and a town that seemed to be working against him. On June 4th, 2004, Marvin emerged from his shop, a man on a mission. To destroy the town of Granby, Colorado, and everyone that had worked against him. In the preceding months, Marv bought a thousand-pound Komatsu bulldozer that he armored with concrete-filled steel plates, creating an indestructible armor. His path of destruction began at the bane of his existence, the concrete batch plant next door, taking out their main building before heading into town. Marv took out 13 buildings, several cars, and even a kid's playground before meeting his demise at Gamble's Hardware. Marv took his own life that day, but left hours of cassette tapes to tell his story of retribution. Hi, I'm Heather Grayson, writer, producer, and director who craves passion in filmmaking, and documentarians are just that. I write fiction, but I love to watch the truth. My name is B.C. Wayman. I'm an actor, a writer, an entertainer, all sorts of creative endeavors. But what I love most? Being a storyteller. It's why I love documentaries. They're extraordinary stories from everyday extraordinary people. This is Behind the Dock, and today we are behind the scenes with Tread. Hello, my name is Marvin Hemeyer. Today is April 13, 2004. This tape is about my life since I come up here in 1991. I want to say right now, God blessed me in advance for the task that I am about to undertake. We are very excited for today's episode. We have a wonderful director from a really gripping and amazing film. So let's welcome everyone, Paul Salet. Paul, tell us how you're doing. Tell us a little bit about yourself and let's get going. Uh, I'm doing okay, all things considered. Yeah, thanks for having me. Good to be here. Let's get right down to it, Paul. Why? Why make this story? Why make Tread? I think from the moment I saw images of the machine, you know, I was fascinated by this story. When you see sort of a what really is a tank, essentially, driving through small-town America in what appears to be a war zone, there's a inherent character question at the core of it. Who would make this thing and why? You know, what, you know what, what was done to this man or what did he perceive as having been done to him in order to feel that this was the necessary action to take? So as soon as I saw images of the machine, I, I was sort of hooked Everything was so good and so well done. It looks as though you did build one yourself when you were making that machine. Were you kind of getting into his mind? We did, in fact, recreate the machine. Um, I had an incredible production designer, a man named Rob Wilson King, who is really a living legend in the in the art department world. And I was just really, really lucky to have him and his team. And they really did rebuild the machine. We, Our production team sourced uh, a Komatsu D355A bulldozer, which is like a massive 28-foot-long, you know, 14-foot-high quarry glass bulldozer. There's this huge black monstrosity. I mean, almost like a World War I big boxy rumbly tank. And then the next thing you're thinking is, how do, you, how do you attack something like this? How do I stop this? And Rob and his team 
in a matter of weeks built a machine that took Marvin 17 months to build. I mean, our version of course is, um, is different. You know, Marvin, Marvin was using, um, you know, thicker steel and more and more of it. And, you know, we're, we're using some, some, some tricks, uh, to make it a little bit more manageable, but it was a really incredible thing. And it was interesting. It's a good question. It was interesting talking to the art department team about what their experience was building this thing. And they absolutely had the experience of thinking about, well, what, how did this guy do this? Cause he, what he did, he built this machine on his own. He built it, you know, alone in this 2000 square foot portion of a warehouse. Um, and he built, you know, a custom, a custom winch to, to lift and move massive plates of steel. And from a, just from a sort of engineering standpoint is sort of a marvel you know, Marvin in his daily life was a muffler mechanic and a really good one. And he applied his trade here and, and, uh, and you saw, you know, all of the sort of anger that he, that he had and the resentment that he had manifested in physical form in this machine. It was, was a, a sort of, a an incredible thing to see it kind of come back to life and a, and a little bit ghastly. Yeah, it was, um, it was like something out of a horror film. When it comes to that, and it's interesting, Paul, because you talk about how, you know, it has a lot of your uh, special effects department has a lot of influence from feature films and such. And that's where you got your start, right? You got your start kind of in the horror film genre. Yeah, I come from scripted um, movies. So this was actually the first doc that I had made. And so the recreation, it was necessary to tell the story. You know, there's there is a really a, a wealth of archival material you know, you had a police officer shooting, you know, a large portion of the event on a camcorder. You had helicopter footage, but that was really the only the back third of the event. And so the first um, portion of the event, you know, was something that if our duty as filmmakers is sort of to guide the audience through a subjective experience of what happened, it really was our our sort of obligation to to recreate that stuff as faithfully as possible. You did a really great job in putting those pieces together and having us know who Marvin was, not only with the interviews that you did with his friends and his girlfriend, ex-girlfriend. He's all, he was old school to me. You know, men are, people, society doesn't allow that anymore. You know, he's a handshake's a handshake kind of guy to me. I mean, he was confident and I thought he was handsome and he was larger than life. I felt safe with him. But also just sliding his tapes in. How, how many times did you listen to those tapes? How did you, like, when, when you were listening to them, were you really getting in, into his brain? Were you understanding where he was coming from? I listened to the tapes uh, many, many times. Um, I really studied those tapes and, uh, you know, definitely the goal when you're making a documentary about someone who's not with you, you sort of have an obligation to try to really understand their perspective as much as possible. And this is a guy who sat down and deliberately recorded his version of his legacy. In particular with the tapes is that Marvin Hemeyer is a very dynamic creator of short sound bites. It's a kind of a community that in order for you to get ahead, you have to keep the neighbor down. It's not, you know, build yourself up on your own merits. It's tear the other guy down. He has sort of one-liners that are really striking. And when they're out of context, 
you can't help but for a moment at least go, man, this guy really sounds like he was he was wronged. Something really bad must have happened. And so you listen, you lean in. But the more you listen to him, the more he talks, the less sort of substance you find in what he's saying. But it has to be done. And the world will write stories about how wrong I am. And without a doubt, I wish it could be done a different way. But there is no way to make this right. You know, he was an angry guy. That's the real takeaway. And the, you know, the purpose, having realized that, was to was to find a way to allow the people of the community who had actually experienced this, you know, all across the spectrum, from the the first responders involved to, you know, people who were close to Marvin, to people whose livelihoods were destroyed by what he did, to allow them to tell the story for the first time. I kind of remember the story. I'm old enough. And I've seen and read about it, but a lot of it was the sensationalized version and his descent into madness, for lack of a better term. But you got the side of the people who experienced it from, you know, the people whose he was potentially targeting to the people that were responding to it. How was that going back to Granby? Was the town and the, the Thompson brothers and Dick Brody and all the people associated with this who he had vengeance against, were they open to talking about it? Were they reluctant? How did that how did you approach them and how long did it take you to get them to open up to you to share their side? I think any town that has been through a kind of collective communal trauma like this is going to be naturally wary of outsiders, especially outsiders coming in with a camera, you know, from Los Angeles. You know, what we did was meet with people first and to allow them to get to know us. So I just had coffee with people you know, I didn't, you know, we didn't jump into trying to put anyone on camera. We, we just said, you know, you know, sit down and, and talk to the filmmaker and, and ask him questions and see what his motives are. And you definitely stay objective. Really all the people that we met in Granby, I really, I liked and cared about. And, and ultimately they were very welcoming and they opened us, they, they opened up the community to us, you know, like giving them a, a way to tell the story from their standpoint, which I don't know that anyone had really done. We don't have a, a ton of information about Marvin previously to his time in Colorado. Did you go back and research some of his life in South Dakota and not put it in the film, or did you decide that it wasn't the story you wanted to tell? Just curious on the focus on post-Colorado time is uh, compared to the, like, before he gets into Granby. Marv Hemeyer, he was from South Dakota, and uh, he served in the Air Force. He realized that he had a knack for welding, working on engines and motors. He was stationed in Colorado and decided to stay in Colorado when he got out of the Air Force. There's for sure a six-episode series in this. You know, I would watch it. And in that series, you would get into who he was growing up. and. You know, what was his family life like and where did he develop the, you know, the, the religious beliefs that he had? And, but like you said, it really, the focus of this story was the experience uh, that, that Marvin had in Granby and that Granby had with Marvin and, you know, the dissonance in those two differing perspectives. And, and so we, you know, we, we chose to, to not dig too deep into that. 
you know, we mentioned that he had, uh, you know, some military experience. We mentioned that he was already successful in, in, in business and, and, uh, owned several muffler shops before he moved to Granby. But for the, for the purposes of the, of this film, it just, it really, it starts where Marvin's own narrative starts really, which is, um, when he moved to Granby. He did a lot of great work for people, ran that muffler shop for a lot of years. Uh, I even had work done at his shop. He had a reputation as being the best welder around. I don't remember this story, unfortunately. Whenever I was watching, I was like, oh my gosh, how could I have missed this? It actually did happen on my birthday. So I, oh, wow. I was like, yeah, I was like, wow, okay, I turned 24 that day. That's probably why I wasn't paying attention. But, you know, it was just the whole scope of it and the city itself, the town. I kind of put myself in the place of of the town folk there because I grew up in a very similar town in Ohio like that. So for myself to have seen this giant machine and the effort that this guy put into building it, what was it for you to just look at it and say, the scope of this is so huge. How am I going to break this down and work it into a documentary? I looked at this uh, the same way that I would look at a scripted feature from a structural standpoint, you know, and, and, um, and, you know, my editor, Darren Roberts did the same, you know, we, you sort of look at what the story points are and, and sort of carve away the pieces that aren't relevant to the, to the primary narrative bit by bit. And, and then you seek out, you know, whether it's in interviews or recreations, you seek out and create the, necessary components and assets to tell that story. I'm Anne-Marie Kelly. Wild Precious Life is a podcast about dreaming big, digging in and connecting across distance, division, and loss. In each episode, I talk with prize-winning writers, musicians, and wanderers who remind all of us how we can make the most of the time we have. So meet me here. Let's walk and talk and dream and discover what it means to be wild, precious, and brave. When you look at it from that feature film or that scripted film aspect, the film is beautifully shot. The, the drone footage is beautiful. The snowmobile footage, I don't know where you filmed that out, but that was an amazing-looking shot. They just really were great. So it's clear you put a lot of emphasis into that because not all documentaries have that level of cinematography that you put in. Was that an emphasis that you wanted to make that look like a scripted film, or is it just a result of your background and your knowledge base? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate that. I, my, my director of photography is a guy named Zoran Popovich. I never work with anybody else. We've made five movies together and worked all over the world, and I love him. I swear by him. He's a real master, and it's a visual medium, and, and you know, first and foremost. You know? So I don't ever take that component of it lightly, and we really did push you know, to, do, to create a, uh, an immersive cinematic you know, subjective experience of what happened. And, you know, your number one tool is cinematography, you know, so I'm really fortunate to have had, to have had Zorin and, and, you know, the support of, uh, of Panavision who provided us, you know, the best anamorphic lenses in the world. And that's a real luxury on a documentary, you know, uh, much higher paying work, but they believed in this in this film and, and showed up for it. And these are people that don't show up and they don't do half measures really. So 
you know, I was really thrilled with that stuff. All that, that snowmobile footage, um, was shot in Colorado and all the people snowmobiling, they are the Thursday crew. Those are the people that he snowmobiled with. Oh, the Thursday group. Every Thursday, they take day off and go riding. Sometimes you have four guys. Sometimes you have 24 riders. Just a great bunch of guys to go out and ride with. And as the story goes, once again, this, the story plays out really well in film. It starts with, you know, some really great shots that set up, kind of, I was telling Heather, this Chekhov's gun thing with all the welding shots and this, and you don't really know where it's going. And it does have a lot of, throughout the first two-thirds, you know, a good narrative, but it's a lot of interviews. But then it really picks up in that last third, and you start intercutting reenactment footage with news footage, with interview footage, and it painted this picture of every person's view, first responders, what each um, of the potential targets was going through. And it really ramped up the pace of the film and left you kind of like on the edge of your seat through it. Was that a, an intentional thing, or was it just, once again, just by the footage, and when you got it all together, you knew that it had to end like in this kind of Hollywood fashion, this beautiful uh, last act? You know, we always knew where the story wanted to end. You know, um, we knew what the third act would be. It is the the rampage. 911, what's your emergency? Um, this is Jerry of the Trash Company. Uh-huh. And there is a bulldozer over a mountain of concrete destroying their building. You know, there was never any question about that. I think the, the intent, even from a treatment phase, uh, when we were really, when I was initially conceptualizing it, was to provide you with a, one perspective and then, you know, and to invest you in that perspective and then to counter it and to swing the pendulum back and provide you with additional perspectives that make you question the prior perspective to move you to a place where by the time you get to the third act, you're invested in all perspectives. And you may feel that, uh, you know, Meyer has lost it. You still feel for him you know the goal is that by the time you get to the end of that third act that you're so invested in all of the people that you care for everybody and and you feel it as what it was which is a sort of a an actual tragic event from all sides hey i hope you all have a great time and good life i've had a great life and i'm gonna put this tape and tape recorder in a plastic bag somebody else can Try to figure it out. We'll see you later. You give a lot of, we talked earlier, attention with Marvin in his tapes. The film basically begins on them and ends on them with Marvin's words. Have you gotten any flack saying you're making Marvin this anti-hero, even though I don't think it's painted that way, but we know sometimes even if you dramatize someone who committed an evil act, people can be upset by just giving them attention. Have you gotten any of that, people not knowing about it and then saying we maybe should have let this story lie so we don't have copycats and these types of things? Yeah, that's a really good question, you know, and something we talked about a lot. The reality is that this is not a film that glorifies who he was or what he did, even remotely. What it is, is a sort of a, an intimate window, you know, a sort of a case study of exactly the processes that, that lead to these sorts of explosions of violence that we see throughout society. Gus Harris and Cody Dochev and the powers that be the Thompsons, if they were to let me alone, I wouldn't have had this righteous anger. You know, more and more, you see these kinds of explosions of rage 
that result in, you know, a, a lot of times, you know, loss of life at a, at a great scale too. So, you know, I don't think that we serve anybody by pretending that these things don't happen. I think the greatest service that we can provide is trying to understand how and why these things do happen. Ultimately, this is a movie about resentment and what it does to the human perspective and the fallibility of a single human perspective. You know, I, it, this is a movie that if it's doing its job, it, it, it should make you question your own perspective the next time you're angry. It is a movie that is designed to make you think about how we treat each other, how we communicate and how we care for each other and, and to be a little bit more attentive to, to everybody in our communities, you know, and, and, you know, to me, that's a purely positive endeavor. Seeing that he was losing some basis of his mind, you know, the people that were around him and you, you said it perfectly, this is, this is about looking at people around us and noticing when something's wrong. Was there anybody that came back to you and said, you know, you know, I, I did notice something was going on with him, but I didn't want to speak out. I didn't want to, I didn't want to go out and like call him out on something. Was there any regret from anybody that they didn't notice anything? Yeah, it's an interesting question. The Hemeyer was very, very private. I mean, he was entirely private about what he was doing. He was also a guy who he ran his mouth. I think what people were most surprised by was that, in fact, a lot of what they had thought of as noise was, in fact, signal. There were a couple people who I spoke to who, who said, I remember he said, you know, I remember him saying, you know, I should just get a bulldozer and just, you know, roll through this whole town. But we probably all heard people say that kind of a thing, you know, like a sort of a, you know, comment that subtext of which is like, well, I want to burn it all down. You don't take it literally. You know, there's no, there is no frame of reference for making a tank and destroying the town. What you described when you talked about Marvin being there is like he was he was loud, he was abrasive, which is kind of exactly what he described his main, in his brain, I'll say antagonist, which is Cody Docheff. And I don't think Cody was in the film, if I'm correct on that. Cody felt that his family had been through too much already and that it would it would be sort of re- re-traumatizing to, to speak to us. You hear his interviews that uh, Patrick Brower had done. So we have audio interviews of Cody. Cody, do you remember the first time you met Marv at that auction? Yeah, uh, me and Gus went to the sale auction in Denver. Uh, that was on the two acres in the shop. Right. But did, did you talk, you talked to Marv afterwards, right? After the auction or during the auction, did you talk to him? No. Yeah, it's just found it interesting that he was whoever he was accusing of seems to be those things himself. Was there anyone else you really wanted to get on camera that you didn't get a chance to? I think, you know, it would have been interesting to to have Cody. Um, You know, I would have loved to have spoken to Marvin's family. You know, it's funny sort of how things work out, kind of the way it feels like they're supposed to have worked out ultimately. Like the having Marvin and Cody both only in pre-recorded audio interview gave a sort of... um, sort of balance to the to the movie and to their perspectives that I actually 
ended up feeling like was a real asset. It's not a limitation I would have chosen, but his not having participated, I think, ultimately probably made it a more effective uh, telling of this story. There's the difference of points of view or memory about what happened after Marv got it. Cody Dochev, I mean, this guy's just a fucking asshole. Come back and just introduced himself by giving me a tongue lashing for about 10 minutes. I don't think I even met Marv Me and Gus just got up and walked out after we're done. The reason I ask is that Marv claims that uh, you guys talked afterwards. Uh, I don't believe we talked to Talker. No. I mean, I talked to this guy forever, it seems like. Uh, like everybody around me, they couldn't believe this asshole. I mean, this is the only guy of all the properties that sold before his that was doing any screaming at anybody during the auction. I loved how you described at the beginning that this was a whole town that went through this trauma, and it really it really did. I mean, you did it so well, too. You know, there's there's not a lot of people that can go and make a documentary and it be just amazing. You know, it's just an amazing, amazing documentary. So it, it speaks on the, on the filmmaker that you are. So thank you for making it. I, I think it was, it was a well-told story and you did it very well. Oh, thanks very much. I loved get, you know, getting to know these people and to understand this community a little bit. And I would love to do it again. You learn all these interesting little facts about people as you go through this documentary process. And Paul, I discovered an interesting fact about you when I did a little Googling on the internet that you may share something that I am deeply passionate about that Heather and Sarah vehemently disagree with me, is that there is only one type of flavored milk available for consumption, and that is strawberry, sir. Oh, that's funny. You really did your digging. Yes, right. So I need you to tell them right now why strawberry is so much better than chocolate, that gross chocolate milk. Oh, oh, that's such a complex uh, thing to get into, I got to say. My appreciation for strawberry milk comes from uh, an old friend of mine who uh, at one point I actually watched basically live on frozen strawberry quick and Mountain Dew for uh, months. So we'll leave it at that. That's a diet of champions right there, strawberry milk That's and Mountain right. Dew. Uh, we read also, too, that your fans are called strawberries. So I'm definitely a strawberry. I will tell you that for sure. I really want to thank you so much for talking to us today. Tread is available everywhere. And um, as we heard, definitely something that you should go out and take, take a very, very hard look at not only the movie, but you yourself and how you are going to look at people around you. I really enjoyed that aspect of our conversation today. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks, guys. No, it's been great, and we appreciate all of the background information. Um, we try to give people who are looking out there, aspiring documentary filmmakers, some things to go on. And even a simple tip is you don't just email and say, hey, let me put you on camera first. Have a cup of coffee with them, break down some inhibitions, and then get to know them. Or just great behind-the-scenes information that I don't think everyone thinks about when they start this process. They just want to grab a camera and find a, a real moment, a true crime thing to latch onto. So it's great to see that the legwork can result in a much more complete finished project, which Tread is. It's a beautiful-looking film. So I really appreciate some of the behind-the-scenes information you shared with for us and our listeners. I think it's a lot of great information. So thank you so much for that as well. Awesome. Thanks, guys. I am the co-captain of my life. God is first, I am second. You have tried to control my life. You have tried to be the captain of my life. You do not run my life. You do not determine 
What I desire, what I want, what I deserve. I determine that, and my God determines that. Not you people. No people do that. If they do, then you're a slave to them. I am not a slave to man. I am a slave to God. Behind the Dock is produced by Evergreen Podcast in association with Gravitas Ventures. Special thanks to executive producers Nolan Gallagher and Michael D'Aloya. Produced by Sarah Wilgrube and audio engineer Eric Coltmau. And you'll find us everywhere and anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. You've watched them in unforgettable adventures, love affairs, and tragedies. Now it's time to hear their own remarkable stories. From the makers of Death of a Rockstar and Death of a Sports Star, this is Death of a Film Star. Starring Heath Ledger, Marilyn Monroe, Chadwick Boseman, Robin Williams, Carrie Fisher, and Bruce Lee. Search for Death of a Film Star in your podcast app. You've seen them tell stories. Now it's time to tell theirs. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.